Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad Podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Ray McClanahan, who is a podiatrist and works at the Northwest Foot and Ankle Center located in Portland, Oregon. He is also the creator of the Correct Toes Toe Spacers, which we will talk about later on in the podcast. Today we're talking about foot health, how to fix bunions without surgery, heel pain, hammer toes, shin splints, and plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciosis, depending upon what you want to call it. If you are watching this on our main YouTube channel and would like to hear the whole episode, you can find it on the Bob and Brad Podcast's YouTube channel or anywhere else podcasts are streamed. So without further ado, here is Dr. Ray McClanahan. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ray McClanahan. Thank you. It's great to be here. So can we start with you telling us a little bit about your background story? Happy to. Yeah, I uh, was a very active kid. I played a lot of sports, enjoyed all of the sports that I played. But my senior year of high school, I got really interested in running and started running races and running road races and reading the magazines and so forth. But I, I started out my running career injured almost from the get-go, age 17. I did go off to college, but I had stress fractures and all kind of uh, related issues that kept me out of running. Took too many Advil, got too many cortisone shots, had people recommending surgery. So my own background was riddled with injury that I don't necessarily feel like I got quality information in terms of how to get well. Um, I then went on to my hometown where I taught high school and I coached track and field and I uh, was inspired by one of my uh, co-educators uh, to go back to medical school because that was really my life dream was to be a sports medicine doctor. So I, I went out to Philadelphia and I trained at the what used to be called the Pennsylvania College of Podiatric Medicine. It's now Temple University of Podiatric Medicine. And I spent four years out there, got a podiatry degree, moved back to Portland, um, and I learned surgery thinking that that was probably what would best help my, my own clients in my sports medicine practice. And I uh, worked for an orthotics lab. I did a lot of operations for about five years. And I unfortunately was actually getting very crooked toes on my own feet. My, I, had a, I had a bunion on both of my feet. I had what, what's known as an overlapping toe. For the audience, that's a hammer toe that sits up on top of this uh, big toe. And again, I was still in pain. And this is in my late 20s and early 30s. Um, so in 1999, I came across an article by a podiatrist by the name of Dr. William Rossi. For your audience members, it's on our website. And uh, I, I received that article in Podiatry Management Magazine, and it was called Why Shoes Make Normal Gait Impossible. And that was intriguing to me because I, I'm interested in gait, and I looked at all of my patients' gait, and I was trained to look for certain parameters that were going to relate to their injury patterns. So I, I dove into the article, and I uh, was quite shocked to find out that this Dr. Rossi I'd never heard about in podiatry school, traveled all around the world, and he looked at different cultures, foot structure, what kind of injury patterns do they have, what kind of foot problems do they have. And more importantly, I, I had my eyes open to the importance of footwear, not the way that we get it marketed to us in terms of the bells and the whistles and the airs and the wedges and this and that, but um, more importantly, how footwear, for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about this morning, uh, does things to our feet which aren't necessarily favorable or natural and i was i was quite intrigued by what i read it made perfect sense to me and i was thinking about my own feet as well and literally um when i read the article i was confronted with a truth that caused me to change my practice the next day literally i stopped putting people on the treadmill as the first line of defense i started looking at their footwear and changing their footwear first before i looked at their gait or before i treated them and it was very eye-opening for me. At the same time, I was imp implementing these principles in my own feet. And some things happened to my feet that my colleagues told me could not happen and medical school told me could not happen, which was that my big toe could move out from under my second toe or that, and that my second hammer toe could actually get straight again. Uh, but I've got visual proof and hundreds, of, if not thousands of our patients um, have also taken photographs of the changes that have taken place in their feet. So while I was operating at the same time, uh, part of the component of a bunionectomy, which is for the audience members correcting a bunion, is literally to cut a muscle off of the inside of the big toe. And as I'm doing this about 10 times a week, I got to thinking selfishly about my own foot and realized that I don't think I wanted anybody to cut my adductor hallucis off of my big toe. So I 
thought about what Dr. Rossi taught me. I started hanging out with my physical therapy friends and I started uh, peppering them with questions about how, can we rehab feet? Can we straighten toes? And I'll never forget being in the nursing home one evening. I had patients there, my physical therapy buddy had a patient there who had fallen and laid in her bed for I think weeks and her whole body started to get stiff. And I'll never forget, he uh, warmed her up methodically and worked her through ranges of motion as she was recovering. And I was stunned at how much mobility he got back. That kind of was a light bulb moment for me, uh, inspiring me to think about, can we do these same things to feet that are stiff and to muscles like the adductor hallucis? In other words, do we need to cut it off of the big toe or can we stretch it over the long term? And so I began this process on my own feet. I started putting single silicone spacers in between my big toe and my second toe and my fourth toe and my fifth toe because my fifth toe was completely under my fourth toe um, on, and on its side. So I was basically running on my toenail. And now I know I was wearing size nine Nike running shoes and I shouldn't have been wearing Nike at all. And certainly not a size nine. I'm now more of a 12 in most brands. But point being, I, I began watching my own feet changing. Uh, my wife at the time kept saying, your feet are changing. And I didn't even know she was looking at my feet, but um, I wish I would have taken a picture back then. Um, now my feet are healthy and I run every day and it doesn't hurt. And I show my patients, I spread my toes out, they're wider than the ball. And, and so that's kind of my backstory now because of my experience and seeing what my patients have accomplished. It's really my passion to non-surgically help people get back in their game. Yeah, you're going for the root cause of things versus just a surgery approach, which is uncommon for a surgeon. True. <laughs> uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about the Northwest Foot and Ankle Center? Yeah, so we are a natural podiatry clinic. And what that really means is instead of uh, putting the patient up in the treatment table and poking on what hurts and giving it a diagnosis and treating it, we start with education. We talk about what we just talked about in terms of footwear being probably a root for many people, may not be the only cause, but always, I think, related. So we do a lot of education. We do treat people, obviously, if they have something that needs conventional podiatric treatment, we do that. Some people need orthotics. I give cortisone injections. I even, I just did a surgery, which occasionally is needed. But along with surgery, like you just said, Mike, we always have to get to root cause. And this is where I'm trying to influence my podiatry buddies. Um, sure, if people need an operation, do that, but then don't send them back into their same footwear, which was the root of them needing the bunionectomy or the hammer toe correction and so forth. So um, the difference is we try natural first, and I'd say 90% of the time people get well just with non-invasive, non-aggressive, non-expensive things. And then um, we've also learned that if we if we educate the patient on what their footwear needs are, and then they go out into the, the footwear marketplace, for years they were told various things. They were told, um, well, they were certainly told that I kind of lost some marbles and I was going to hurt them by trying to get them to run in a flat shoe or, or a flexible shoe, because at the time my colleagues were going around the, the world saying shoes needed to be torsionally rigid, only bend at the ball of the foot and have a stable heel counter and so forth. Um, so by necessity, we realized that if we wanted folks to have the footwear that we knew would help them, we actually also have a shoe store here. So we've got a natural clinic. I've got two naturopathic doctors on staff with me, which um, we all practice the same way, even though they're naturopaths. I actually practice more like a naturopath these days than I do a conventional podiatrist. And then here at the clinic, we also are, have our correct toes headquarters. So our, our toe spacer also gets shipped out of here. Sure. So do you want to tell people your websites where they can find you? Because you have two different sites, right? We've got uh, Northwest Foot and Ankle, which is our clinic website. And we've also got correcttoes.com, which is our toe spacer website. Uh, for our people listening, sorry, you can't see this, but these are what the correct toes look like, if you're curious. So if people, you guys have a YouTube channel, right, too, but you just kind of have some older videos on there? Um, I'd say the most recent one we've done is probably six months ago would be my guess. Okay. Uh, do you see clients online as well? I don't personally, but my two associate doctors do. Okay. So if yeah, someone so wants to reach out to you, they would just go through Northwest Foot and Ankle Center? Correct. Yeah. They'd just give a call and Megan at the front desk would get them an appointment with one of our other two doctors. Okay. Sounds good. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to get into the meat and potatoes here of the questions. So what type of shoes are best for foot health? Yeah. So there's probably four or five broad parameters that are probably going to be helpful for almost everybody listening. And the first, the first feature that I would say is healthful would be having no heel elevation. Um, Dr. Rossi, who I mentioned earlier, used to call it flat. These days, the industry term is zero drop. So in other words, the, the heel is, is not higher than the ball of the foot. So that's, that's uh, the feature number one to be avoided. And the reason why you want to avoid that is they've done studies where they've taken people in heeled shoes and then flat shoes and then done, done an MRI on their calf muscles and Achilles tendons. And the study was done on groups of ladies. One group of ladies wore a two-inch heel. The other went on a flat shoe or a zero-drop shoe. Believe it or not, the two-inch heeled ladies had calf muscles that were 14% shorter. So everybody in podiatry and orthopedics and sports medicine would tell you that a tight calf muscle is, is a root, uh, a causative element. Um, but what's interesting is I used to have all my runners coming in and all their calves were tight. And so I'd have them stretch and rehab. And then I'd check them a week or two later and they're still tight. And I now know why they would stretch for 10 or 15 minutes, but then they go back into a shoe that the heel was higher. And so they got short again. So they weren't, they weren't actually gaining anything. Um, so negative number one is elevated heel. Negative number two that I learned about from Dr. Rossi, I never even heard this term in podiatry school. It's called toe spring. So if your audience members look at their shoes from the side and look at the, where the toe portion of the shoe is, they're going to notice that the ends of the toes will be held above the ball. And that's also not healthful. Um, there's ideas that it's somehow going to help us roll through. Um, and maybe if they have a horrible arthritic joint and you're a very old person, that might be something favorable. But for young people, you need your toes on the ground. And more importantly than that, you need your toes spread out and on the ground. So the third feature that we don't want, which is a fashion feature, is a tapering toe box. So in other words, the ball of the foot will be the widest part of that shoe and it will get narrower. And it doesn't matter if it's a, a D, E, double E, triple E, it's still a triangle shaped in the wrong way. Meaning that the, believe it or not, and the way, to, the way that I encourage people to think about this is we're all born with the widest part of the ends of our toes. If you look at, if you look at the baby footprint at the hospital when we're born, we're all born widest at the tips of the toes. And what's different about us versus cultures like I grew up in in Liberia, West Africa, where they don't own shoes and certainly not the shoes that we um, wear, the old people are still baby-shaped foot. They're still widest at the tips of the toes. And you don't see bunions over there and you don't see hammer toes and you don't see the things that we see here. Um, so elevated heel, toe spring, tapering toe boxes. And then the fourth thing uh, is if the shoe is super stiff, you might not be making best use of all the bones and joints in our feet. And believe it or not, our feet have some of the most bones and joints in our whole body. And they can do some really remarkable things to help us stay upright. They will allow us to have these footwear design features for a long time and we might not even hurt. But the problem with the elevated heel and the toe spring and the taper and so forth is eventually our feet learn to be shaped like that. So if you hold your foot like that for long enough, like I did, you take your shoe off and your foot looks like your shoe. So when you wear that toe spring, the muscles, the calf muscles on the front of your leg also get short and tight. So if we wear the heel, the back of our legs getting short and tight. If we wear the toe spring, the front of our leg is getting short and tight. And this is a huge problem, Mike, because we've got this really complex um, layer of muscles in the bottom of the foot known as intrinsic muscles. In other words, they're the, they're the arch muscles and they're critically important. But the problem is when we shorten the back of our leg and shorten the front of our leg, those muscles get long and weak. And I know that Brad and um, Bob are gonna appreciate this because a component of physical therapy is understanding a concept called length to tension relationship. And I learned that relationship from my physical therapy friend, Jay DeSherry, who is now out here in Oregon in Bend. He's got a great book, Anatomy for Runners. And he's also recently written another book. I think it's called Running Rewired. But in his first book, he's got some really nice graphics about how if a muscle's too short, it's not functioning optimally. If a muscle's too long, it won't be able to overcome its antagonistic muscles. 
And that's what most people probably here listening to us, Mike, are doing unknowingly to their own feet. And then I probably would throw in another feature, which would be you don't want your shoe to be heavy, uh, especially if you're an athlete, because they've done some studies where they've looked at the oxygen consumption in people that wear heavy shoes compared to people that wear really lightweight shoes. And think about your leg going behind your body with heavy shoe, you're going to work harder to get that shoe out in front of your body. So that would be another thing to try to avoid. And for the audience, if y'all are interested in this, we've got boatloads of information on the website that does a deep dive on all of this. Yeah, you guys have a lot of different blogs on these subjects, don't you? you yeah. The uh, Yeah, the heavy shoes are kind of funny. I have a friend that bought like these $200 carbon foot plate running shoes and he's obsessed with them and I just think they're the funniest things in the world. Because <laughs> I'm running with my little minimus shoes and we're just like polar opposite, but <laughs> he swears by them and I think they're just kind of a joke, but I, I, I think I spent like $65 on my shoes. <laughs> I like it. That's the other any, cool... What's that? Do you have any like brands you recommend? I, mean, I know yeah. there's tons of companies, but yeah, we have lots of brands that we recommend. Um, probably rather than listing them individually, I would dr- I would direct your audience's attention to our shoe list. Okay. And, and also the website. We've got all these different brands on the website. Um, when Dr. Rossi taught me what I'm sharing here today, I was frustrated because I understood what he, what he knew and what I needed to do for people. But I scoured the community and there were literally three options at that time. So we're talking 1999. The options were Birkenstocks, which obviously you're not going to run in. Um, The other option, surprisingly, was Crocs. And um, so we did some really wonderful things in Crocs, including I ran my marathon PR here in Portland in a pair of Crocs. And people, I think here in Portland, misunderstood us. I think they thought we were trying to like stand out or make a statement. But realistically, if you look at Crocs, they're basically what I just talked about. They don't have a higher heel. The toes aren't up in the air. You can spread your toes. They're light. Um, So back then, my patients looked at me kind of sideways when I said, yeah, I think you should train for your 10K and your Crocs. But they did. And the ones that trusted and the recommendation in their body um, did really well. And I wouldn't see them in my office. I would see them at the marathon or out training or in the clubs that we ran in. Um, so, or the third option would be get something custom made, which is cost prohibitive usually. Um, subsequent to that, I'm so thrilled to see a lot of smaller companies finally getting this information. I would say the last I checked, probably last week, there's probably 50 or 60 what I would call natural footwear companies now. And they're not all for sports medicine. Some of them are sandals and some of them are casual shoes. But quite frankly, some of the stuff that would be considered casual shoe might actually work appropriately for athletics like the Crocs. Another side story, if we have time, Mike, is we have a great race out here in Portland called the Hood to Coast. And it's 200 miles and we get teams of 12. And one year uh, I was on a New Balance sponsored team. And so they sent us all the great gear and they sent us these beautiful racing flats. And at that point, my toes were spaced and I was healthy. And so I put them on and I tried to warm up for my first leg. And immediately I knew I wasn't going to be able to run comfortably in them. So I I actually ran the Hood to Coast in a pair of Lems, which is one of the brands that we like. They're out of Boulder, Colorado, and they're not a running shoe. But um, once your feet are strong and healthy and you understand the principles of what your needs are as an active person, you can start to uh, disavow the idea of shoe categories. You know, the market wants us to believe you need a shoe for hiking and walking and volleyball and pickleball and you know recovery and all this kind of thing. But quite frankly, if you understand your feet and your feet are well and the foundation is level, you can get away with a lot of things in in non-categorized footwear. Do you normally have people kind of transition from normal shoes to minimalist shoes? I'm so glad you brought that up, Mike, because after I outlined the shoe characteristics, I wrote myself a note to make sure and address that because if there's a danger for anybody in the audience uh, incorporating this, it would be doing it too soon. And there was a book you may be familiar with, Born to Run. Oh, Born to Run, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Sorry, that's, and, that's run for your life behind me. That's a different yeah, one. Yeah, another great book. Uh, Dr. Mark is fantastic. Um, the sequel to Born to Run 2 just came out and I just picked it up this weekend. But when the first one came out, I want to say 2009, 2010, it's a beautiful story about uh, the Indians down in the Copper Canyons of Mexico who come to the Leadville 100 Mile and win it with a sandal strap to their feet. And um, so as if you're familiar, they went down there and they studied the culture what are they eating? How are they training? Are they using drugs? What's what's the deal? And the takeaway really is they have strong, healthy feet and they always have, and they've never done any of the things to their feet that we've done that weaken us and cause all the arch problems and so forth. Um, so once that book came, came out, um, everybody said, wow, this makes sense. And I'm getting rid of my big, heavy shoes. And all of a sudden either went barefoot or went in a minimus or something along those lines, but too quickly. And I, I'll give an example of, of why that's not a good idea. I went snowboarding with my daughters over the weekend and did some new things for two days, which aren't harmful, but I did too much of them. And so I'm sore, you know, and the same thing happens with transition of footwear. It needs to be very, very slow and gradual. And, and there's no perfect formula, which is what makes it kind of difficult when having this conversation is if you've got 15 year old child and you've got a 65 year old adult, their transition period is going to look entirely different. Um, body style, body weight, the footwear they've been they've been wearing their whole lives, what kind of uh, podiatric problems might they currently be having? So yeah, that's probably the most important feature to cover in this whole thing, Mike, is to have success with this. And a lot of people can, if not most people, we have to let our bodies get used to something new. And the irony is that something new is actually something we not should not ever have had to relearn. You know, yeah, something if, if, old is something new. Right. You know, if we could prevent children from running into these issues like most of us do in middle age, then um, they wouldn't have to take this instruction. They wouldn't have to adapt. It would be just what their body has learned. You know, um, so the adaptation period, you're right, is is critical. And if people do it correctly, um, most people won't go back to their old shoes. Most people won't go back to their orthotics and need surgeries and injections and medicine. Yeah. Cause I, when I, I'm in my mid thirties and I transitioned, I just got a pair for like everyday walking, standing, and I still ran in my normal old shoes. And once like six months went by, I started running in flat shoes, but still with cushioning. Um, I mean, they're not, you know, a minimus. They're the, uh, what are these again? The ultras. So they awesome. have some cushioning, so they're flat, but there's like more because they're Roadrunner versus a, you know, a five finger shoe. But yeah, that's just kind of how I transition. But uh, yeah, I would imagine, you know, my dad is, uh, he's starting with the toe spacers. <laughs> he's still running in his old shoes yet, but he's he's uh sixty nine, so he's transitioning a little slower, but. He's getting, he's getting success with the correct toes. He has a huge bunion. So, all right. Wish you well for me. <laughs> I will. Uh, is there anything you want to add about footwear before we change subjects? Not that I can think of. I think we covered it. Okay. Uh, so we're going to get into fixing bunions. So can someone fix a bunion without having surgery? It depends. Um, most people can, but there's a subset of people that allow their big toe to go away from where it's supposed to be. So let's see, away from where it's supposed to be like this towards the second toe. And if the big toe pushes the metatarsal, let's see, I'm doing it backwards. So I think I'll just discuss it instead of trying to do a graphic. Um, if the big toe pushes against the inside part of the metatarsal bone for too long, it will literally create a space between the first metatarsal bone and the second metatarsal bone which generally does not reduce itself. Um, we can get those people's big toe straighter. And if we improve the footwear, we can probably get them out of pain. But there are a small portion of folks that um, this is not going to reduce the bump completely. Now, these folks are typically sixth, seventh de decade. They're typically females who most of their life, they were in that tapered toe box position. And for the ladies, you don't even have to wear a stiletto high heel shoe to get a bunion. All you need to do is wear the shoes that are sold to you based on the metal measuring device, the Brannock device, and you'll still get a bunion. So the answer to your question, Mike, really depends upon is there flexibility in the bunion? In other words, 
can can the can the client take their big toe and pull it away from their second toe and make it straight? If they can do that, they'll have success with this. In other, in other words, if they um, have the mobility, can wear some kind of a toe spacer and are willing to wear the shoes like you and I wear, then they will slowly see their bunion reducing. And for anybody in the audience that may consider doing this, I encourage you to take a picture of your feet from top to bottom um, before you start this, because it's slow. And um, sometimes it's ungratifyingly slow, but most of the people we work with, it does work. Um, for instance, for me, it took me three and a half years, but, but I would consider myself to have been a severe case. For young people, we'll see, we've got testimonials on our website, people reversing them in nine months, and these are pictures, and they're not photoshopped, we're not trying to sell product, we're really trying to provide optimism and hope that this, is, this can happen. Because most people that I talk to day to day, including yesterday, are told that this can't be non-surgically um, corrected, and that's not true. So for the audience, anybody that's got a bunion, got a family member with a bunion, dive into this information, give it a try because it will work for you. But more importantly, Mike, even if somebody in the audience has, an, has a bunionectomy, these principles are still applicable. When I have somebody with a bunion, I tell them we're gonna go this natural path, um, but even if you need an operation, we're not wasting our time because if you need the operation, you'll still do this stuff after if you wanna have success. I learned that the hard way. I had a young young lady, she was 36, she was a runner, she had a bunion. I operated on her, made her big toe straight, she was happy, sent her on her way. About seven years later, she came back and sat in my office and looked at me kind of unusually and said, I thought you did a good job on my surgery, why is my bunion back? And I had just read Dr. Rossi and so I pulled the sock liner, which is a removable piece out of her size seven yellow Nike running shoe and I put it under her foot like Dr. Rossi taught me to do. And I superimposed her foot on it. And she and I both had a collective light bulb moment where I realized that my scalpel and my screw and my saws didn't fix the problem. The surgery temporarily made her toe go straight, but her shoes pushed it right back. And this happens, it's happening right now. It's not at all uncommon to have multiple bunionectomies. And it's not uncommon for the podiatric and the orthopedic community to consider that to be normal and acceptable. And in my opinion, it's not. If people get the information, um, you shouldn't have to keep having an operation. But to your earlier point, um, root cause is not being addressed. In podiatry, we're told that bunions are in your family. It's genetic. It's hereditary. Nothing you can do about it. You might get an orthotic or you might get an arch support, which might slow it down. And that's also not true. I ask my podiatric colleagues constantly, how is putting something up under the arch mitigating the tapering toe box, pushing the big toe up and up against the second toe or under the second toe? And there, it, it can't, there's no answer to that. So bunions are not, it, actually it's reverse. When your big toe starts going towards your second toe, then your arch gets flat. So podiatry teaches it backwards. We teach our students, jack up that arch and make the subtalar joint neutral, and then somehow the bunion's not gonna get worse. It's not true, it doesn't work, it never has worked. So um, footwear is critical. People with bunions wanna start standing on the removable piece that comes out of all their shoes, and when they do that, they'll see. They'll see a one-to-one -one relationship of the sock liner, or also called the insole, is the same shape as the upper part of the shoe, so if your foot is not um, completely on top of that insole, the upper part of your shoe is squeezing the toes. And early on, this is painless. So we deform our feet into bunions and we start this, you know, we start this at age three or four, but it doesn't hurt. And it happens so slowly that a lot of people aren't really even aware of it. In fact, a lot of folks come in and they're like, I looked down at my feet yesterday and I noticed I have a bunion, my big toes crooked. And, um, they hadn't really drawn their attention to it, but once they do, they recognize it, but it's a slow, insidious process that can be prevented. Um, so basically what we wanna do is get the information to people that the footwear is primary piece. It's not about your arch, it's not about your family. Um, nearly 100% of people that have a bunion and everybody in their family that had a bunion 
have feet that are wider than their shoes for their whole lives. And furthermore, their shoes are shaped wrong. They're widest at the ball and getting narrower. And for the audience, uh, we did a three-part uh, blog series called The Hereditary Bunyan Myth. And um, we've all, we also did a video where we show we show a, an x-ray of a person inside of a pointed toe box shoe showing that the bones are held in a bunion. And the thing about our body that I'm sure Bob and Brad would agree with is if you hold your body in a habitual position, it learns that. So for instance, you and I are both sitting in chairs right now. So our hip flexors are starting to get a little short and contracted. And if I sit on my phone all day and do this, um, short and tight, long and weak. So um, our feet are the same, Mike. If we lift our heel, our calves get short. If we lift our toes, our front calves get short. Tapered toe boxes, bunions, and tailors bunions, and so forth, and weak arches. So really, bunions are mostly related to footwear. Um, once you get footwear that fits you, you're likely to be able to reverse your bunion. What else? Are there any other tips to helping reverse bunions besides footwear? Yeah, um, we have a really great uh, rehab that we do called the Bunion Stretch. So basically, um, and it's on our it's on our website. You are essentially working on the muscle in between your first and second long bones, which is called the adductor hallucis. When we wear pointed shoes, that muscle draws the big toe towards the second toe, and in my case, under my second toe. And so this rehab strategy allows the individual audience member perhaps or anybody not needed to go see a massage therapist or physical therapist can actually work on that little trigger point that occurs in there and once that muscle starts to loosen up then the big toe is going to move away from the second toe but i'm careful to tell people with bunions that even if they never touched their feet never did any of this rehab but just got properly fitting shoes and used a toe spacer it's going to slowly change on its own but i always like to share the rehab because mostly i do athletic work and my athletes really want to get better quicker so we try to accelerate the recovery with doing some of these things yeah and i we talked about your correct toes before the podcast started so i don't think we actually showed them yet on camera but these are the toe spacers you guys created correct correct so do you want to tell us a little bit how these work yeah so i when i read dr rossi and i, I started putting single spacers between my toes my toes did change and I felt better and some of the back pain and knee issues and foot issues started resolving. But when my feet started to sweat, they wouldn't stay in place. And this is before I had an awareness of toe socks. And so they're sliding all around and I'd have to stop my run and kind of put them back in place. And runners don't want to stop their run, you know, for something like that. And so I was out mountain biking with a buddy of mine who is a designer and I was complaining a little bit. I knew he worked in silicone and we were working on a couple projects and I'm like, can we make something that is one piece that does the same thing so that I'm not stopping my run every three miles to jam these things back in place? And he's like, sure, we can. And we did. And we made a lot of mistakes with our early prototypes with materials and design and so forth. But as we tweaked it over time, we got it down to where we felt it was anatomically correct. And most importantly, we want people to have this in their shoes. And so that was also 20 years ago. Um, and now we have four sizes because obviously there's all kinds of different size feet. I would say to the audience members, the overwhelming majority of men and women wear medium, which might sound unusual, but, but again, it's really, um, we try to provide broad parameters like your shoe size, but for the audience, it depends more upon how big around are your toes. In other words, what's the circumference of your toes? Because that is the critical piece in terms of how your toes fit into the cavities of the product. Sure. I was looking, I actually have Brad still in the package here. Yeah. Medium is a men's size seven to 11. So that's what I have. I, I didn't know what mine were. I didn't have my package anymore, but these are also, so yours are different than a lot of other toe spacers. Cause most of them you can't really walk or even run in and yours are actually functional. Yeah. That's our whole goal. Um, the others are more passive, which sometimes can have some benefit. Um, however, what we've discovered is where people really get their most benefit is while they're active and when they're weight bearing. In other words, when they when they spread their toes and when they're weight bearing, the brain foot connection is heightened and they, we get really good information from our feet that help our brain to tell our bodies what we need to do. So that's how we recommend it. We do 
occasionally have people that wear them at night. I had, and we didn't early on recommend that. We've since changed that mostly because of patient and customer feedback. I had a lady yesterday that told me she, she only wears them at night, but she feels more comfortable when she gets out of bed. So um, that's one use for it. But yeah, we're trying to differentiate ourselves from the passive uh, toe spreaders to a more dynamic toe spreader. Yeah. I, I mean, it is easy to wear them in bed because you just, you're not paying attention. They're just there stretching all night. So it's a nice passive way. And yours also have, yours are different because you can expand the fifth toe or the first toe as well. So if you need more spacing, that can help as well. Correct. Yeah. So just like we want to take a really slow, gradual approach to accommodating natural footwear, which is also sometimes called minimal footwear, the industry also likes to currently call it barefoot footwear. Um, we start with the conventional or the separator the way it is. And then depending upon the level of deformity of either the big toe or the fifth toe, we can at some point down the road, and usually it's probably three to six months, we can start to put another little piece of material in there. And what we like to use is the sock liner that comes out of the shoe. We usually have people leave that out anyway because it's just foam and most athletic shoes are soft enough under that. So we have people cut a little chunk out of their sock liner and take a bathroom tweezer and just pull it down through there or you can just push it into the little cavity. So that slowly over time, if you've got a regular bunion on the big toe or you've got what's called a bunionette where your fifth toe is coming in under, you might eventually want to put more material into that outer cavity to push your fifth toe out a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, because that's what I need them for. I actually don't have a bunion, luckily. My dad has one, but yeah, that's what I find the benefit is getting the fifth toe out there. And like Brad has, yeah, kind of bunions and cross toes. Um, and Bob has a hammer toe. So we have all sorts of foot issues <laughs> on our side. Good thing we found you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, is there anything else to add about bunions for switch topics? Not that I can think of. Okay. Oh, actually, I take it back. One more thing, Mike. Um, sure. It's interesting. Sometimes people will have bunions only on one foot, and that is a curiosity to them. They ask, well, if I've got the same influences with shoes, why am I only getting one bunion on one foot? And usually that's related to the bunion foot having, the bunion foot's a longer foot, typically, which means there's more of the toes in the tapered part and the toe spring. I also find that there are body asymmetries. And um, so if I see a bunion on one foot, I might also send that client out to my physical therapy or body worker friends to have a whole body evaluation, M ranges of motion, muscle testing, um, testing for weakness, testing for contracture to see if there might be something else further up the chain. And I also have found that when people have a leg that's longer than the other, that foot that's longer will sometimes pronate more which also can sometimes have a relationship to the big toe joint function. So footwear is the first thing to look at, but I also strongly encourage a whole body evaluation. Yeah, the whole chain connects there. I'm dealing different side subject here, but I was dealing with some lateral hip pain on my left side, and we discovered my old right ankle injury with limited ankle motion screwed up my running gait so much that it started affecting my other hip. <laughs> So yeah, it's a whole kinetic chain. If you got issues somewhere, it's usually caused from somewhere else. All right. Um, so we're going to start talking about heel pain. So what are some common causes that create heel pain? Yeah, um, there's probably two or three common ones, but we have to be careful with heel pain because there's outliers as well. And we could talk about some of those outliers. For instance, if somebody comes in and both of their heels hurt at the same time, we definitely talk about footwear, we set up the rehab, we talk about toe separators and some of the uh, other things that we do, but we also keep our thinking cap on in terms of autoimmunity, connective tissue disorders, infectious disease like Lyme disease and so forth, medication side effects. I've had people take antibiotics and have bilateral plantar fascial irritation, but overwhelmingly, most people that we see are dealing with something called plantar fasciosis. For the audience, this used to be called plantar fasciitis, which suggested that the ligament on the bottom of our foot known as the plantar fascia was getting inflamed. Um, actually, before I go into that, Mike, there are also probably two other things that we see fairly re regularly, which are a bursitis under the heel, 
which usually doesn't hurt first thing out of bed in the morning like fasciosis does. Usually bursitis hurts also centrally under the heel instead of on the inside um, back part. There's also a couple nerves that go down the side of the heel that can get irritated by a hiking boot, a running shoe, a stiff orthotic, uh, a seam inside of the shoe. But I'd say overwhelmingly what I've seen in 27 years is probably eight or nine out of 10 of those people have first thing out of bed pain in the morning that gets a little bit better as they move around, sit down again at lunch, hurts again until they move around a little bit. One of my medical school professors in Philadelphia, Dr. Harvey Lamont, is not only a podiatrist, he's a dermatopathologist. So he looks at tissue specimens under the microscope to find out like what kind of disease is this? What kind of inflammation is this? And he, he's like a lot of podiatrists and physical therapists and orthopedists that are seeing a lot of heel pain. And some statistics say it might be 40% of what we see. Um, he did a, he did a uh, histopathological examination of 50 of his patients, because if you fail what podiatry calls conservative therapy, which is ice and uh, orthotics and injections and anti-inflammatories and physical therapy, and maybe a mobilization, you're going to get offered some kind of an operation to release your plantar fascia. And I did a lot of that early on in my career, and I'm glad I don't do that anymore. And I wish people wouldn't have that because some of those folks never really recover. But the point is, Dr. Lamont did that operation on 50 of his patients. And during the operation, he took a piece of their plantar fascia ligament. And he looked at it under his microscope. And this study is also on our website, published in 2003 in the Journal of the American Podiatric Medical Association. When he examined his specimens, nobody had any inflammation. All 50 of them had dead tissue or degenerated tissue, which was a shock and a surprise to all of us. Um, and we'd sit around the seminars talking about how can this be dead tissue? Because some of these people are young people and these people are not folks that have diabetes. They're not smokers. I feel their pulses, their feet are warm. They've got hair. There's nothing wrong with their circulation until they put on the kind of footwear that we talked about at the outset of the show. And this is this is pivotal for anybody listening today who has heel pain, this kind of heel pain, if it's fasciosis. I'll, I'll mention a study done in 2009 in the Journal of Foot and Ankle Research, um, not on our website, but maybe you could look it up. Group of researchers took people's big toe and purposefully put it in a bunion. And then they took an ultrasound machine and they measured the blood flow coming into the bottom of the foot right where people get plantar fasciosis. And when the toe was in bunion position, there was a 22.4% reduction in blood flow to the area of the heel where people hurt first thing out of bed in the morning. So it's no longer a mystery why this does not respond when we treat it as if it's an inflammatory entity. Um, it's also no strange mystery when people get their big toe out of bunion position and resolve their plantar fasciosis. And so to your earlier point, Mike, this is an example of where we, we shouldn't be treating the location of the pain because in plantar fasciosis, it's not where you hurt under the bottom of the heel. There's a muscle there that tugs on that very location and not only tugs on the plantar fascia and the heel bone, which makes a spur, which doesn't hurt by the way, and doesn't need to be removed. Um, but it also, that same muscle strangulates the lateral plantar artery. And that's what that artery show, uh, that uh, article showed. We also um, did a similar infrared study, a, a friend of ours in Spain did, um, where he took his infrared camera, put correct toes on only his right foot, waited a half an hour, didn't put one on his left foot, and captured the heat signal of the blood flow going to the tips of his toes. Tips of his toes were five degrees Fahrenheit warmer. So we really do ourselves a terrible disservice to our circulation, believe it or not, with our footwear. And this isn't just stiletto high-heeled shoes. This is our walking, running, hiking shoes. Um, and you can tell if you're doing this to yourself, audience, by pulling the sock liner out, like we mentioned, superimpose your foot on it. If your big toe is spreading beyond it, you're probably unknowingly creating some circulatory inflow problem. So um, here's where, again, we, we try to focus on the big toe as opposed to where the pa patient hurts. On the other hand, like bunions, once we've outlined the, the natural educational material, we can treat these people, and I do treat these people. Fasciosis is dead tissue. So um, in addition to all the education, I will sometimes tape these people. I might do some shockwave on them. Um, and I also inject them. And I inject them with a variety of different things. Um, 
I inject them with cortisone, believe it or not, which you have to be very careful with cortisone because it can be dangerous if used inappropriately, but I use it for tissue that we don't want to be there. So if somebody comes in with fasciosis, I try to get the body to break it up and clear it out of there. And that's what cortisone does. I will use cortisone for like neuromas, which is abnormal nerve tissue or ganglion cysts, which is abnormal fluid that we don't want. So we'll also use regenerative injection therapies, which are biological injections designed to, believe it or not, create inflammation on purpose so that the patient can actually heal their own body. And this is a prolotherapy, which is sugar solution, platelet-rich plasma, where we take your own blood cells and we put your platelets where you hurt. Your platelets will make new tissue and repair the area. More recently, we're using stem cells, which are immature cells. They don't know what to become. And if you put them in the area of fasciosis, they'll start to remodel that tissue too. Um, beyond that, we just give it a tincture of time. We generally don't rest these people like I used to. When I thought it was inflammatory, I put them in a boot. I told them don't run. But when I took them out of the boot and I told them to slowly get back into running, their pain came right back, which puzzled me. But it also indicated that stopping activity and curing inflammation or calming inflammation didn't cure their problem. So now I show the patients in the clinic the abductor hallucis muscle strangulating their tibialis posterior artery. They see it with their own eyes. So they're not believing in a theory about this and it's very straightforward. And that inspires them on their path to fixing their big toe position, which for the most part gets the plantar fasciosis gone. If it doesn't and they come back, then we put our thinking cap on, like I mentioned before, and start asking, is there something else going on? Is this person not well? Or are they on a medication? Do they have a, another disease? Those people are fairly rare, but if people don't respond, we, we start uh, testing a little bit more. How long does it take before the patients see improvement? It depends, Mike, if it's, a, if it's an acute case, which I always appreciate people coming in, if it's like two or three weeks they've been dealing with it, we can turn that around pretty quickly. I, I cringe that I occasionally meet people that they tell me they've had it eight, 10 years. And um, for those people, sometimes it takes longer, but I'd say plantar fasciosis is probably one of the things we have the most success with um, turning around. So, But it's quite variable. I, I'd say, well, as far as I know, we get everybody well because they don't come back and we see them at the race or we follow back up with them. Um, we, we actually early on had a had a journalist come to see us and write an article for Running Times magazine because he was also an ultra marathon coach. His one of his athletes had chronic plantar and she came to us and literally we put her in Crocs and she was better in two weeks. And when you treat it like plantar fasciitis, it's very uncommon to have a two week turnaround. So he contacted us and he's like, what are you doing? You know, and he thought it was some kind of weird placebo or some kind of woo woo that I had done. But literally her foot was positioned naturally. She got her blood flow. She healed her dead tissue. Um, so it can happen quicker than a lot of people think. And believe it or not, we have full grown males weeping in the office over this problem it, because they either some of them are in the military. And if you can't run and you can't do what you need to do, you can't be a soldier. Um, so it's very gratifying, but it's highly variable. And as I shared a moment ago, Mike, some of these folks don't just have plantar fasciosis. They might have a leg that's longer, or they might have a weakness, or they might have a disease. So all of that needs to be factored in as well. What do you do if someone has a longer leg? Usually we send them for what's called a standing upright limb length inequality study. So they're getting an x-ray or a CAT scan of their femur and their tibia. And then the imaging facility sends us a report and then we we figure out, you know, if it's a structural, meaning the bones are longer, we will use full length lifts under their short foot or the short leg to lift their whole foot instead of doing a heel lift, which basically is like having a high heeled shoe on one side only. So heel lift is commonly prescribed. I saw one yesterday, but the problem is her that patient's hips might be symmetric and level, but she's, she's likely going to see somebody down the road for fasciosis or ball of the foot pain because her calf muscles are going to get tight. So we do the study. Um, once we know what the values are, if it's if it's not very much at all, we'll try to do it within the shoe. Um, we also take the sock liner out of the long limb side to try to drop the long limb side some. If somebody has a large discrepancy, we'll send them to the cobbler and the cobbler will cut the, the sole off their shoe, put however much material we need and then glue the sole back on. So there's many ways of skinning that cat. Um, 
but it's also critical to to pick that up because that will create arthritis and back problems and hip problems if we don't. Sure. What I've never worn Crocs. <laughs> what they stay on your feet pretty well then? Back when I ran the marathon, there used to be a lace-up version. Oh, okay. So I, I had a I had a toe sock on. I had my toe spacers on. I had a metatarsal pad and those lace-up Crocs, and it was intimate, just like a running shoe. But it was like four ounces, and I was using my foot properly, so I had a fantastic race. And um, what was shocking to me is usually when I marathon, the next day I barely get out of bed and I don't much, do much of anything for like a week. And that's typical and common, but I now realize that was because I was allowing fashion running shoes to ask my body to do things it never should have been doing, overworking essentially. So when I got done with my marathon PR and the Crocs, I ran the next morning, which was an eye-opening experience for me. Sure, I was sore, but I went and shook it out. And that really probably more than anything was an eye-opener that marathons and long running doesn't necessarily have to beat you up. If you understand your feet are your foundation, let them do what they're designed to do and you'll have a better running experience. Do you, so do you run in Crocs now, like modern day ones? No, I don't. Um, thankfully, there's so many good shoes out there. And one of the, one of the privileges of my work is I'm very intimately related with the shoe companies, working with them, consulting with them. And I get stuff sent frequently. So I'm wear testing all kinds of brands all the time. So no, I don't do Crocs. I'm all constantly cycling through different shoes. Um, Zero, Lems, Ultras, Topos, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I was just curious. I had a friend that used to uh, play pickleball in Crocs. I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> he made it work. Yeah, it can work. <laughs> all right. Um, I think we're going to start discussing hammer toe. So what are common causes of hammer toe? I'm guessing footwear. Yeah, primarily there's there's some rare things too that run in families like neuromuscular disorders that create muscle imbalances, but overwhelmingly the features we talked about before, uh, the elevated heel and the toe spring. So um, when you have a toe spring on a shoe and your toes go up like that and you hold them like that for a long time, the tendons on the top of the foot, the extensor tendons, like my extensor tendons on my hands here, they contract. And they stay like that. So you take your foot out of your shoe and your toes don't go back down like that because you've just been spending the last however long like that. So that's that's negative number one. Your extensors start to get tight. Your extensors are balanced out with flexors. So if your extensors start to dominate, your flexors try to fight back. And so they try to do this. And early on, you know, you'll have enough flexibility. But if you stay in that position long enough, you'll end up being a person like I occasionally meet. I try to make their hammer toe go straight. And this is where I'm interested about Bob's hammer toe. Um, or is it Brad's that has no, a hammer toe? Bob has a hammer toe. Okay. So as I was thinking about Bob and I saw he and Brad did a video a while back. Um, if Brad can make his toe go straight like that, he'll have great success with this. If Brad's toe is really rigid and doesn't allow it to move, he might not have success with correct toes. So that's a critical feature. If it's reducible and flexible, um, to, to Bob's point, when he sent me an email the other day, he noticed that there's material on the top. And he's right, that is designed to push that extensor back down. The ground reaction force is gonna put the flexors back up if you're in a flat shoe. And then we use a metatarsal pad to further pull those toes down. That coupled with spreading everything out holds that toe in proper alignment. And then we take whatever time Bob needs or the audience members need to, to flatten out that reducible toe. And again, it's going to depend upon how long it's been like that. Mine got so bad, it was on top of my big toenail. So it took me longer than it might take Bob or it might take somebody else. If we catch it early, like bunions, it'll resolve really quickly. And again, I'll encourage the audience members to take a picture of this to start because, again, it's slow. But eventually, you'll notice you won't have it anymore. My, if I showed my toes, my toes are flat on the ground. Um, but the key is whether or not they're flexible. So the other thing we do, flat shoe... Uh, toe separator, metatarsal pad. We also do a stretch called the toe extensor stretch on our website in a video where we stretch out the extensors on the top of the foot. So we're bending our toes in under, which early on for most audience members probably won't feel comfortable, particularly if you've got hammer toes. So go really slowly with this. Don't be surprised if you get cramping in your arches because one of the negatives that we talked about before is if your calf muscles get short, and the extensors get short, 
arch muscles get long and weak. So as we put the uh, arch muscles into proper length to tension relationship, like we talked about, they're like, oh, I'm going to contract. But they're trying to antagonize posterior calf, anterior calf, and it won't be a contraction early on. It'll be a cramp. So for the audience, if you start into that and you're like, oh, that cramps, then probably you got weak arch muscles and start doing some of this stuff slowly and you'll get over it. If these problems correct is so I've heard like flat feet, people that have bad arches can correct that naturally. Is that right? Absolutely right. We've got we've got plenty of um, photographic evidence and probably the best picture I've seen recently is my friend Anya. She has Anya's reviews, which is probably the best shoe uh, shopping site for people, all things natural. She calls it barefoot shoes, but she's got slippers, cute boots for ladies, athletic shoes, um, a bunch of different products. She shows a picture of her own foot from like 2017, I want to say, to now. And she's been working diligently on her feet and she has an arch. Um, same thing happened to me when I started getting away from orthotics. I started rebuilding my arches. And it's, I show it all the time when I speak. I show my abductor hallucis muscle, which is like a muscle belly. It wasn't even there before. Um, so, yeah, once we position ourselves properly, the critical thing to think about flat feet is, Number one, it's not always pathologic. It doesn't mean you're going to have a problem. The fastest runners in the world from Africa have pancake flat feet, but they have a world record in the marathon and they don't hurt. So we shouldn't pathologize flat feet. I will be honest and say there are certain types of flat feet that are problematic, but they're way more rare than the flat feet that need their bunion reduced, which lifts up the arch. Again, so if we look at that flat foot and we go, oh, that's a problem but we fail to recognize that if the big toe isn't straight out from the long bone, you're gonna have a flatter foot than what you should. So it is possible to reverse it. Don't worry about it if you um, have a foot, if you're a flat foot, if you're not in pain. If you're doing everything you wanna do and it doesn't hurt you, you're probably at one of those variants that shouldn't be treating it. Um, there's the occasional person that's born with something called a tarsal coalition, which creates a spastic perineal flat foot. That's different. That doesn't get correct with this, but that's rare. That's like 1.6% of the population. Overwhelmingly, people need to get closer to the ground, get the, get the toes spread out, get the toes on the ground, start engaging those plantar intrinsics. They will wake up. They'll get about 10% bigger. And when they do, um, people, people could do all kind of wonderful things with their feet. Why is a lot of other podiatrists have complete opposite opinions? <laughs> I think it's several things, Mike. I think it, primarily it's our training. Um, and this is something when I read Dr. Rossi, the first thing I asked to myself was, I never heard his name once. And he used to write letters to all the podiatry colleges asking them, will you teach some courses on this? This is important. And nothing really ever moved. I think that's one piece. I also think that in medicine, there's sort of a hierarchy that the people that went before you know what's best and you follow what the recommendations are. Primarily, though, Mike, I believe it's a financial reality that we have student loans and medical practice is expensive. And the reality is we have to generate income and doing what I do doesn't generate much income. Um, and I'm cool with that. You know, and thankfully, I've got a product that I sell to help my family support itself. But a friend of mine from Chicago said, Ray, I, I use your correct toes and I see good results. But um, Blue Cross Blue Shield pays me $1,000 for custom orthotics. So the economic reality for most podiatrists is they have to make money and they're comfortable doing it the way they're taught to do it. And I'm not bad-mouthing them because occasionally people need all of that stuff. And I send my colleagues patients every day that need something out of my wheelhouse, like a major surgery. But I think it's education. I also have heard frequently that the medical community takes a long time to turn the big ship around. I've heard, I've heard 20 years for new information to come about. In fact, as we reflect on Dr. Lamont's article, it's 19 years old, yet I was at a podiatry seminar two months ago, and my colleagues are still calling it plantar fasciitis. And I, I asked them that, why are you calling it that? We have better information. We know it's not inflammation. And I get various answers, but I commonly hear, well, the public is familiar with that. But I'm not comfortable with that because the public is familiar with misinformation which means they're going to do all the wrong stuff and end up in the podiatry office over and over and over and not achieve their athletic goals. So I think it's a lot of those things. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. PT is kind of that realm, too. Insurance dictates a lot. <laughs> yeah, We don't accept insurance, and we haven't for 10 years, and that's part, oh. probably part of why we can slow it down. We spend an hour with everybody, and um, they get the information, they get the footwear, and they get well. I had a lady this morning came in with her husband and thankfully said to me, I came and saw you guys three years ago. I had one visit. I did all, everything on my plan of care. I'm walking like crazy, and she's in her 70s. So that's our typical patient. We spend the time, we get the information to them. They understand it. They get their tools and their rehab. And most people, it's a one or two visit scenario, but um, they pay us directly. We don't, they bill their insurance and they get paid back from insurance, but we we're paid at the end of the day and uh, we take really good care of people. And I probably see 10 to 12 people a day, as opposed to, I used to see 35 and I don't think that's good medical care. Yeah. That's a little too quick. And little burnout on the physician's point of view. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to get in the last subject of shin splints. So how do you fix shin splints? Yeah, um, I, well, as you guys noted in your email, there are two types that we all see. There's the anterior type and then there's the posterior type. And both types, I seem to believe, are oftentimes related to overtraining early on. So think about the uh, two-a-day football practices I don't know if they still do it that way. I don't know if the coaches have learned progressive adaptation or if they're still well, they, like, they did when I was in high school. <laughs> same, same. So two or three, you know, you're trashed by the end of the day. An awful lot of those folks will get shin splints and it's not because they have any biomechanical issue. Definitely footwear plays into this too, particularly for anterior shin splints. And by the way, the podiatry community is now calling this tibial fasciitis. Um, as opposed to shin splints, you know, what is a shin splint, you know? Um, so the anterior, in my experience and estimation, does have a lot related to what we talked about earlier. So these runners and walkers and hikers are doing their activities in footwear that has their toes above the ball of the foot, which again means that the front of the calf is going to contract. And this isn't just the tendons going to the toes. This is the muscle belly just below the knee. So some of our older runners, walkers, and hikers who spend their time like that and develop a foot like that um, will start to develop anterior shin splints. Because if you think about those shoe characteristics, especially the elevated heel, what's called your touchdown angle, where you come into the ground, measured from the flat of the ground to, um, so here's the heel, here's the ground. Elevated heel shoe, you, you're here a lot as opposed to a flat shoe, you're bringing your foot in under your body. With an elevated heel shoe, your eccentric deceleration of your extensor group is sooner and longer. So I believe that's a huge component. So we get people out of the footwear that causes that anterior tightness. We do the toe extensor stretch, we do the mat pad, we get the flat shoe. The posterior, I think is very much related to a lot of what we talked about today. So. If you were to ask me what I think probably one of the more important joints in the body would be the big toe, because what I could show, I do show everybody in the clinic every day is I take their big toe and put it into bunion. And we already talked about what it does to the blood flow. We already know what it does to the small muscles of the arch, but I show people how their arch collapses, their tibia internally rotates, their knee is now in valgum coming to the inside, hip is internally rotated. Um, so I think when we wear those shoes like that, and our big toes over towards our second toe, I don't think our flexor hallucis longus or our digitorum longus, long muscles on the bottom, are adequately um, doing what they're supposed to do. And I think the load gets shifted onto tibialis posterior. So when I check these folks, it's probably like the folks you guys see, their pain is kind of along the uh, medial, tibial, uh, medial tibial crest. And so I get their big toe out, which helps flexor halysis longus be more functional. I use a metatarsal pad to get the toes down against the ground and get the flexor digitorum longus engaged. And then we get them in the flat shoe gradually. Um, I can't think of a client that didn't get better with that. Now, occasionally we see stress fractures, obviously. Um, I treat runners and I literally had a runner a few years ago. She had documented bilateral tibial stress fractures and she would not stop running. And my good friend was her coach who used to be a training partner. So uh, occasionally we see things that aren't anterior or posterior shin splints. And the big thing too, you got to be concerned about, I know you know, is compartment syndrome. 
in athletic population can sometimes masquerade as shin splints. Um, but I think the garden variety is going to respond really nicely to everything we're talking about. Sure. Is I know I don't have this on the questions, but I'm presuming footwear has a lot to do with uh, ankle injuries as well. It sure does. In fact, I cringe to think, and I wrote articles in Walkabout Magazine, and I've got articles on my website about, I used to make orthotics for everybody, and we've got a beautiful trail here in Portland, and sometimes the trail is like this, and sometimes the trail is like this. And what I had to learn the hard way is, as you know, orthotics are trying to supinate feet mostly, most of the time. You know, occasionally we'll make an orthotic to pronate people, but typically we're doing this to people's feet. So if they're out running on a trail that's like this, if this if this foot has an orthotic in it, I'm pushing them in the direction of an inversion ankle sprain. I caused this to happen to my former wife, actually. We were on a trip over in Bend, and I had her in a pair of ASICs, which had a bunch of motion-controlling features, and I had an orthotic in there. And we started going down the trail, and sure enough, she inverted her ankle and sprained it. So I couldn't figure out back then why all my trail runners were coming in with ankle sprains, and now I know they couldn't feel the ground they were held constantly supinated or inverted and um the other thing about the toe spring and the taper is your fifth toe is supposed to be a lever it's supposed to evert you and if it's in under your fourth toe and you start to invert there's nothing there's nothing there to keep you from inverting and we did a video on this um mostly as it relates to basketball shoes because obviously there's a lot of basketball players spraining their ankles but um, so we get people close to the ground, we get them feeling the ground, we get their foot under their body when they land. Um, every once in a while, I'll be walking around here in Portland and I'll see a lady walking in like a dance coat clog, which somebody told her is super healthy and she'll step up on a curb and boom, she's down, you know, and they don't know why they think it's a good shoe, but then I'll show them the rigid wooden arch support and I'll show them how their heel is three inches off the ground, twice the size of all their foot and they're constantly inverted and can't feel anything recipe for disaster so i see very few ankle sprains these days very few what if do you do anything for athletes that have to wear like cleats because are there wide toe box cleats there are there's a, a group uh in longview washington that is making some i don't know if they've launched them yet or not uh i think they're calling themselves code footwear c-o-d-e it's going to be custom scanned footwear so we'll take an athlete we'll take a view of their foot and they'll get a cleat made specifically for that shape so that they can wear spacers and not have their toes pinched in. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I know the, uh, whatchamacallit just released a uh, lifting wide toe box shoe. Um, yeah. Uh, Horshig. Yeah. 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 A great option for that community. Um, of our soccer players where they play soccer in what's called true links. It's actually a golf shoe but it's shaped naturally and it's got lugs on the bottom. So even though, here's an example of what I mentioned early on. Uh, I will encourage the audience not to let the market categorize footwear because you can do some wonderful things. Like you said, your friend played pickleball and Crocs, you know? So if you understand feet and what feet are supposed to do, it makes things so much clearer. Yeah. He, uh, he also had American flag Crocs, by the way. <laughs> oh, right on. <laughs> I think they had Even a fuzzy, <laughs> a fuzzy insole too. He was, he's interesting. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to discuss or mention? Not that I can think of, Mike. The only thing I would share is just really for the audience: take your time with all of this. Don't push through pain. Don't limp. If everything's going fine and your body's accomplishing this, you're going to have a better existence. But nothing should hurt. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. If you want to find more information about Dr. Ray McClanahan, you could check out Northwest Foot and Ankle Center, or you could check out his Correcto's website as well. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike.